Tuesday, March 23rd, and welcome to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns in this time of pandemic. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism. I'll be your moderator today. Being a moderator means I get to introduce you to the stars of the show, what we jokingly refer to as Goodfellows, uh, not in the Scorsese sense. They're wise guys, but academically wise guys, not uh, any other way. But let me uh, introduce the Goodfellows, beginning with John Cochran. He is an economist, and he is the Hoover Institution's Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow. Hello, John. Hi. Good to be back. Good to see you. Second good fellow joining us as per usual, I think he's in Southern California still, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. He is the Fawad and Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's also the author of the best-selling book, Battleground, The Fight to Defend the Free World. Hello, H.R. Hi, Bill, John, Neil. Good to be with you guys. And our third good fellow, last but certainly not least, is Neil Ferguson, the Hoover Institution's Milbank Family Senior Fellow. Neil is, of course, a renowned historian and author, and he has a book coming out the first week of May. The title is Doom, the Politics of Catastrophe. You can pre-order it now. Neil, a question for you. I'm thinking about doing a road trip this summer, a long drive somewhere out west, and Doom is the perfect audio companion for that trip. But here's my question, my friend. How do I know that it's you doing the recording and not McMaster or Cochran doing their best Scottish <laughs> imitation? Well, there are a few distinctive pronunciation ticks that the true Scotsman has. And, and one is the word book, which you say <laughs> book. And uh, that's that's the giveaway. If if very few people get that right when they're doing Scottish accents. So, yeah, you'll you'll be hearing me. Uh, I haven't quite finished recording the audiobook. It's a remarkable uh, form of torture to read your own prose aloud in a tiny cubicle as HR uh, may have caused to uh, have experienced but uh, I'm, I'm nearly done and uh, the worst part of it is the mistakes you find when you read your own sentences aloud it's it's actually the most reliable way of spotting a glitch and yet one always does it after the proofs have been corrected that's the torture so John and John and Nature, I'd like to point out the genius of Neil Ferguson, which he's just told you. You have to listen to the entire book to see whether or not the ending says, Thank you for reading my book. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so gentlemen, the topic this week is Joe Biden, President Joe Biden, who this week is doing something he has not done in his presidency. He is giving a full-blown White House press conference. He'll be doing so on Thursday, the 64th day in office. This is late by presidential standards. You go back the past 100 years, starting with Calvin Coolidge in 1923. Presidents hold their first press conferences within the first month. I think 33 days is the average, but now it's Biden's turn. So let's start this conversation. I'm going to do something to the three of you that has never happened in your storied careers. You're getting demoted. You're being demoted from Hoover Institution senior fellows to journalists, ink-stained wretches. But the good news, your journalists who belong to the White House Correspondents Association, that means you have a seat at Thursday's press conference. I'd like each of you to tell me what you would ask President Biden at that press conference if he called on you. Neil, why don't you kick it off representing Bloomberg or the Scottish Times, whatever publication you're representing? Well, uh, I've always uh, wanted to be a somewhat intimidating figure at a press conference. So a lot of the dread words up. Mr. President, I'm from the Daily Mail. <laughs> and if that doesn't cause him to blanch, nothing will. My, my question uh, for Joe Biden would be, uh, on your first day in office, uh, you issued an executive order 
on advancing racial equity and support for underserved communities through the federal government. Mr. President, what do you understand by the phrase racial equity? And what exactly does your administration intend to do to achieve it? Okay, how do you think you would answer? Well, I think it remains to be seen uh, what kind of answers uh, we'll get from President Biden in front of the real press corps and how far they'll be scripted indeed on a teleprompter. But I think this would be a tricky question for him because, of course, the, the phrase racial equity is something that has been foisted on Joe Biden by the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. And those of us who were following the campaign closely will remember that his vice president, Kamala Harris, uh, just before election day, issued a video that was supposed to illustrate the difference between uh, equity and equality. Uh, we, of course, think of the United States as a society founded on the idea of uh, equality of opportunity, equality before the law, all men created equal. But uh, the idea of equity implies uh, an equality of outcomes to be achieved through state intervention. And it doesn't take a great deal of, of deep reflection to see that, that that implies discrimination against some groups and in favor of others. Mm -hmm. So I'd be quite intrigued to see how far uh, President Biden was willing to acknowledge that uh, his administration will be seeking to achieve equity by, in effect, discriminating against uh, white Americans uh, and indeed other other uh, in other ways. Can I follow up on this is a discussion. We're not really a press conference, I think, because I think Neil's brought up an important point, which we should discuss before moving on. A lot of the goals the administration has set with this flurry of, of executive orders are unmeasurable. And in particular, despite also saying we need science policy based policy, how do you how are we doing on social justice and racial equity? How can you possibly measure that? Well, when something's unmeasurable, you, you never make progress. Um, I, I happen to tee up some of the language of one of the executive orders. This is the one uh, destroying cost benefit analysis and regulation. The regulatory review process is now supposed to promote public health and safety, economic growth, social welfare, racial justice, environmental stewardship, human dignity, equity, and the interests of future generations. Uh, it goes on that uh, all regulations have to take into account the distributional consequences of regulations. Uh, as part of any quantitative or qualitative analysis of costs and benefits, uh, to make sure that they don't inappropriately benefit uh, or burden disadvantaged, vulnerable, or marginalized communities. It, it goes on like this, and it's explicit that this is now to be interwoven into the fabric of everything the federal government is. I, I had the uh, pleasure of testifying last week uh, at a Senate committee, and along the way, got the list of questions submitted to the um, new director of the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, of which every single one was um, uh, your diversity and equity and inclusion and hiring and, and, and not, not one was about how we're actually going to run Financial Protection Bureau. So Pursuing unquantifiable goals throughout the federal government by executive order seems like an interesting direction to go. Okay. Uh, John, your question to President Biden, and good news, since you do the Grumpy Economist blog and podcast, I guess you already are media credentialed. So what would you ask President Biden? 
Uh, uh, well, I, I'm going <laughs> to, now you're going to see one. I know you got a series of questions, but it's not a one-on-one. So no, no, I get, I get one question. You told me I get one question. So I'm going to ask one economics question. Uh, uh, Mr. President, as part of the recent um, pa- uh, spending package, uh, variously labeled as COVID relief and stimulus, a number of uh, programs were put in that are means tested. Americans get money, uh, but as uh, as your income rises, you uh, you get less of it, which uh, means that when you earn an extra dollar, you don't get to keep uh, the full dollar. Among those, um, expanded uh, food stamp, SNAP, a childcare tax credit. Obamacare is now moved to uh, something that's 8% of your income, so eventually an 8% additional income tax. Uh, unemployment insurance, which of course you lose if you get a job. Um, affordable housing is a, a classic example. The Section 8 vouchers limit to 30% of your income. So as you earn more, you get less affordable housing. Uh, if you earn more money, you lose uh, your housing. And on college debt repayment, rent repayment, the stimulus checks themselves, which only apply to certain income limits. Uh, as a po- and in addition, of course, the regular fact that income is taxed, uh, income tax, payroll tax, uh, and uh, and. Uh, sales tax. So uh, when your economic team uh, put these together, certainly they figured out the answer to the question, all in, if an American is currently not working, or let's take another American of, of modest means earning thirty dollars or $40,000 a year, if they should earn $10,000 a year extra, how much do they keep after we put in all of the phase-outs, uh, income limits, uh, and, and so on and so forth? What is the incentive to work all in before and after that uh, I'm sure your economic team has an answer to this question. I'm anxious to hear it. What do you think the answer would be, John? We'll get back to you on that. <laughs> uh, there are there are various studies of that. Uh, Casey Mulligan, our colleague at the University of Chicago, has and, and part-time Hoover has done a, a book redistribution recession trying to add up these things. Uh, the Congressional Budget Office occasionally tries to add up. The rough answer I know is you, you can argue about this, depends who you are, but... Um, Pretty much every dollar you earn from zero to about sixty thousand, you lose a dollar's worth of benefits. And it depends on how many programs and which ones you participate in. There's cliffs all over the place. Yeah, you earn one extra dollar, you lose all of your health insurance. Uh, still happens. But. Go ahead, Neil. So this is a fascinating question, not not least because poverty traps have been a feature of the American welfare system for some time. I remember being shocked by that uh when i was researching the great degeneration that's uh, almost 10 years ago now but it's a particularly interesting question right now as we try to work out how the labor market the u.s labor market is going to respond to the enormous stimulus that it's being given uh now we're we're going to get not only the stimulus bill but it looks like infrastructure and the green new deal rolled into one another three trillion uh John, I'd love to get your thoughts on this because it seems to me that this is a this is a little bit of a ticking time bomb for the administration. That the U.S. labor market by the end of the the pre-COVID period uh, looked like it was a labor market you could run hot without a big inflation problem. Uh, our new uh, and brilliant colleague Tyler Goodspeed pointed out on a seminar call that you and I were both on, that in that final phase, a lot of the people who were getting jobs late 2019 were coming into the labor market. They had left and they were coming back in. 
But it seems to me that there's a risk that the way the Biden administration is setting things up, uh, the labor market bec could become a good deal more rigid and the incentives to go back to work might actually be a lot less uh, strong than they were in 2019. Is that the way you're thinking about this, that, that they're unwittingly creating rigidities that could make the labor market perform much less well in response to all this stimulus? Uh, I think it's not just a problem of stimulus, of creating another uh, painfully slow recovery as we had after the uh, 2008 recession, but I think it's a, a secular danger. And I asked the question in part, I'd like to move that, the discussion tends to be about stimulus, Keynesian stimulus and inflation. Um, and it sometimes is about redistribution and how much money you can afford and taxes and so forth. But I think as an economist, our number one insight ought to be about incentives. Uh, and uh, I'd like us to spend more attention on incentives. It is an issue that has been batted back back and forth. It's the issue that made me an economist. Um, but we, we had uh, welfare. We realized in the 60s and 70s that the American welfare system was trapping people in poverty by huge disincentives to get out. There was some effort to make uh, the incentives better in the 90s. Many European countries, Sweden famously, fixed a lot of its incentives. And now this is part of a bigger discussion that, that maybe we don't want work incentives because people shouldn't have to work. Uh, maybe we need universal basic income, which will, of course, be means tested and therefore provide another uh, disincentive. Uh, but a lot of there's a lot of discussion on the left, uh, you know, even New York Times ish. Uh, saying, you know, people don't respond to incentives. We need to just give them more money no matter what. And that this uh, this heartless thing about you need to feel some pressure to work is something that the U.S. should get rid of. And uh, so I think um, I think that danger of 100% marginal tax rates is is with us in a larger way. And I think it's something economists should talk about more because we're better at incentives than redistribution. Okay, we have time for one more question for the president. This comes from H.R. McMaster, the White House correspondent for Army Times, Stars and Stripes, and How to Border Digest. H.R., your question for the president. Hey, well, I, ch I changed my question based on the way that the conversation's been going. So I would just say, Mr. President, you, you have engaged in a kind of extreme form of fiscal stimulus, and, and of course, the national debt uh, has, has risen as a result, yet your, your administration is talking about cuts to defense. Isn't it, isn't it possible that at a time when the People's Liberation of, of Army of China has, has increased its defense spending 800% since the mid-90s, that by cutting defense uh, in uh, what seems to be an effort to have some degree of fiscal responsibility, uh, you're, just, you're just perpetuating the fiscal weaknesses uh, and compounding them uh, with a weaker defense uh, that may not be sufficient to deter an increasingly aggressive People's Liberation Army? Kind of a loaded question, I guess. But the first question I was going to ask, if I can just maybe ask a second one, I was going to ask about Afghanistan. Uh, I, know, I know we've been watching the Secretary of Defense visit there. Uh, I first met General Austin in Afghanistan in 2003 when he was a division commander of the, of the uh, 10th Mountain Division. And, you know, I, I, this, this, <laughs> I would want to ask uh, President Biden about this, this resurrection of the language of responsible end of the war, uh, which was last used to describe the complete withdrawal of U.S. forces from Iraq in December 2011. And of course, we know what happened you know, just a couple of years later uh, with the rise of ISIS there. And if, and if he is concerned about replicating that experience in Afghanistan in a way that creates a humanitarian catastrophe. So 
Um, these are these are two of my concerns about about the defense um, and and national security approaches of the administration. I think other areas they get high marks, but I'm really worried about uh, about, about continuing to 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 uh, to put off a, a bow wave of deferred military modernization uh, as as that's uh, important. I think to deterring China in particular, and I'm also concerned about this so-called responsible end of the war in Afghanistan, which I think could be catastrophic, uh, not only for the Afghan people, but for the people of the region, for Europe, and and also result in increased risk from jihadist terrorist organizations. HR, HR and Neil, let, let me ask a question of both of you. Um, Neil wrote a brilliant uh, Bloomberg column over the weekend that got me thinking. Uh, so I'll ask Neil as well as HR. Uh, and we could phrase this as a question to the president. Um, it strikes me that mo the most likely danger is not an invasion of Taiwan, but what happens if China uh, pulls out the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis as precedent and says, we don't want the U.S. installing military things on Taiwan. There will be a blockade around Taiwan, which we will enforce uh, and not, not in, and all shipping going in and out of Taiwan shall be inspected by the People's Liberation uh, Navy to make sure. What does the, Mr. President, what will the U.S. do in this circumstance? I think I think it's a, I think it's a great question. Um, you know, I think we we certainly have the military capabilities to, you know, to bust a, a blockade there. Uh, but of course, you know, if you make that decision, you know, who knows what you escalate to next? And do we have that capability? In, in sense of that means we shoot first. Well, no, I mean, I, I think you know, I, I think who knows how this would develop. But I, I mean, I think it'd be an extremely dangerous situation. Obviously, it would have it would have huge you know uh, economic implications. Uh, and we've talked on, on the show before about about the the, uh, the fragility of the supply chains associated with computer chips, for example, and and the reliance on TSMC in in Taiwan. Um, you know, of course, this would be you know, this would, would of course be an act of war, uh, which which a blockade is an act of war. And it, it, I think it's unclear, you know, based on this policy of strategic ambiguity, how you know how how the United States would respond, how the president would respond. So, HR, you're chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. What would you do? Well, I mean, I, I would. There, there are options available, and I, and I probably can't go into these very, very much. But of course, you know, there have been four Taiwan Strait crises. Uh, the United States has responded to all of them. So, I think it would be a mistake uh, for, you know, for China to assume that that we wouldn't respond to the next one, right? And and uh, and I think there would be a you know, tremendous, uh, tremendous pressure to do it. Um, I saw Neil's column as well, which is excellent. I think, I think what you did is you boiled down the whole issue of increasing you know, Chinese Communist Party aggression into the one critical flashpoint. Um, but I, you know, I think we still have the capability to respond to this, but, but we have to continue to invest because the People's Liberation Army, as I mentioned, is, is already engaged in the largest peacetime military buildup in history. This is where it gets really interesting and, and kind of reverberates into your domain, John, because one thing I learned from the reading I did in preparing to write that piece is that if you did have a, a, a Taiwan Strait crisis today, it would be a much different ballgame from any of the previous crises. Uh, the most recent in the 1990s was one when there was really nothing the Chinese could do if uh, aircraft carriers from the U.S., went into the Taiwan Strait. They do now have the capacity to sink those ships. And as I was realizing, the crux of the matter 
uh, is would uh, the US be able to uh, get rid of, degrade the integrated air defense system, which would be the key really to any successful uh, relief of the blockade? Actually, the analogy is not Cuba, it's Berlin. And this would be a kind of airlift uh, that you'd be undertaking. And the impression that I got from my my reading and looking at experts who've, who've published on this, Tanner Greer and uh, Lonnie uh, Henley of George Washington University, is that actually be quite difficult as things currently stand uh, for the US to uh, establish air superiority without a really large scale campaign against Chinese installations on the mainland. At least that's the lesson I learned. And when I read uh, the excellent report that uh, Robert Blackwell and, and Philip Zelico our good friend just published for the Council on Foreign Relations, they make the point that the US would also have to contend with the financial implications. They say the US would have to impose financial sanctions on China. But if you think about what the economic effects of that would be, I'm not sure who would be hurt more, the United States or China. And I struggle to imagine the Biden administration focused as it is on economic recovery and trying to make itself look as good as it possibly can in 2022, risking a full-blown financial crisis and even a war for the sake of Taiwan. And my sense is when I, when I put all the pieces together, that the Chinese suspect this weakness and will be very tempted to test out the administration. That's why actually this is the best question for President Biden. What will you do in, a, in the event of a Taiwan crisis? Because I'm not sure that there's a credible answer to that question as things currently stand. But HR, come on, you, you as former national security advisor have a better understanding of the defense capabilities and, and the national security options in the event of such a crisis. Wouldn't this become an air war pretty quickly? It's, it's an air war and it's a subsurface war. Uh, and, and, um, and it's an aerospace war as, as well, because all of the, you know, the capabilities that you're mentioning, you know, the, you know, the, the tiered and layered air defense systems, they rely on terrestrial capabilities, airborne capabilities, and space capabilities. So this is, a, this is a conflict that obviously operates across all domains. And I would add cyberspace and the electromagnetic spectrum as well. So uh, it, 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 this kind of a, a fight can't be contained you know, just around Taiwan. As you mentioned, uh, Neil, that this would quickly carry over into the Chinese mainland and then, and then potentially be beyond that uh, as well in, in terms of placing assets that are valuable to us at risk, potentially in Japan with our bases there. Uh, as as well as uh, as well as in Guam, as far as away as Guam. So, you know, it, this is extremely dangerous. And you know, I, I'm reminded of Margaret McMillan's excellent essay called "The Rhyme of History" that she wrote in 2014 on the 100th anniversary of the breakout of, of World War One. And as you recall, Neil, at, yeah, obviously uh, you know, prior to World War One, there were many who thought economic interdependence had made war passe. Right? It wouldn't make sense. Right? And and of course. We tend to think about China this way. Gosh, it wouldn't make sense really for them uh, to invade Taiwan. Look at the damage it would do to, to, to their economy. Look at what, you know, how destructive the war would be for all parties involved. But of course, sadly, you know, that, that sort of logic oftentimes doesn't apply when it confronts, you know, the, the kind of jingoistic nationalism I think that, that Xi Jinping is, is, is conjuring uh, in large measure to solidify his and the party's grip on power. So it's an extremely dangerous time. And I believe the flashpoint really is 
quickly, it will be quickly upon us uh, after the Communist Party Congress in 2022 and, and after the Beijing, Beijing Olympics are over uh, next year as well. Let me ask both of you the, the larger question then. We, we've been discussing by email uh, before this show uh, some issues of the zeitgeist, uh, our Secretary of State's interaction with the Chinese, uh, our uh, Ambassador to the United Nations, um, uh, uh, first um, speech there. Where, to put it, uh, how can I put this nicely? Does America have the will or belief in herself, the belief in our, our vision of the world as being, of, of the US being a force for good in the world that one needs in order to um, prevail in a strategic confrontation of this sort? I thought the, the Anchorage uh, meeting uh, between uh, Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan on, on the U.S. side uh, and uh, Yang Jiechi, the party supremo in foreign pol policy on the other side, as well as the Chinese foreign minister, was an extraordinary event uh, because it seemed to me, first of all, to reveal the strong sense of the Chinese side that they can play hardball with this administration with impunity. Uh, uh, Yang Jiechi's uh, attack uh, in his uh, extended remarks, which overshot the prescribed two minutes by a factor of eight, uh, essentially involved turning on uh, Blinken and Sullivan the rhetoric of the American left, saying they had no business talking about Chinese human rights issues when they hadn't addressed their own deep-seated human rights problems in the United States, uh, and in particular on questions of race. And that's why I think the administration's tendency to uh, talk the language of uh, social justice and, and racial equity hands our international opponents a stick with which to beat us. And it doesn't seem to me to help matters when the, uh, the new American ambassador to the United Nations launches her career with a long speech about the problems of racism in the United States. So it seemed to me to illustrate how this endless self-criticism that the United States goes in for is emboldening uh, China and leading uh, Chinese diplomats to feel that they can speak really quite uh, in quite harsh language, not quite wolf warrior diplomacy, but close. And what was the response uh, from Tony Blinken? Oh, God, you guys overran your two-minute time. Um, I mean, Jerry Baker put it very well in a piece in the Wall Street Journal today. Excellent. Uh, th this, this, is, uh, this kind of uh, constant uh, emphasis on the wickedness of American history, including, by the way, re references to the bogus 1619 project by the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., absolutely encourages China to feel that they can, in fact, flex their muscles and they will get away with it. And that's actually the dangerous point, as HR was uh, suggesting. What happens when wars begin is often that each side underestimates the other. And what I worry about is that the Chinese are gradually taking the, taking the view that they can, they can really try it on with the Biden administration, that they don't have to worry the way they did with the Trump administration because Trump was unpredictable and who knew? I think they've got, they've formed the view that this administration is a pushover. Uh, and if they turn out to be wrong about that, then we're very quickly into that escalation 
uh, in all uh, domains that that HR so vividly described. But they they may also, as your as your article pointed out. Uh, in Bloomberg, they may be right about that. This could be our Suez moment, not because, as HR points out, of our our lack of the means to do something, but our lack of the will, the desire uh, to do something. Uh, The Soviet Union fell apart when those in charge uh, believed that the system was immoral and not worth defending anymore. And I... uh, you know, the moment is, is this administration, is anyone, is the elites of the U.S. still believe that we have something so worth uh, bringing to the world that it is worth the calamity of, of fighting a war rather than, uh, you know, let China have some island, who cares? Yeah. I was what? amazed to read in the Blackpool Zelico Council on Foreign Relations paper uh, the following passage and, and I'm going to quote it because it's uh, it gets to the heart of, of the stakes in the events of the blockade scenario uh, you'd have economic as well as 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 naval and military war quote first the United States would freeze all assets owned by China or its citizens in the United States second, the United States would cut off and strictly control any business transactions or dollar transactions with China. No trading with the enemy would be conducted. This would necessarily end any payment of interest on American securities, government or private held by Chinese citizens or the Chinese government. It would include at least the suspension of interest payments on treasury bonds held by the Chinese government or Chinese citizens. Quote, these moves would immediately trigger a large and devastating financial and economic crisis. Absolutely. I don't, I don't see how that's going to go over well in the Oval Office when it's explained uh, by the National Security Advisor to the President that that's what they have to do. Uh, and they'll be picking Janet Yellen off the floor. Uh, but it's, it be- but it's, all, it's, it's, it's also important, though, for the Chinese leadership to read that report as well, because I do think that they are they, they are gaining more and more confidence in terms of of the success of their system. They're talking more and more now, if you're reading some of the translations, Neil, the, the, you know, the, the China model now is a term that was rarely used. Now it's used, you know, every day and in multiple places uh, as an alternative, right. To our, to our Western model. Yang sure who you, you know, has always been kind of an arrogant guy, uh, you know, but it was, it was at the ASEAN conference with the small countries of Southeast Asia in 2015, where he said, we are a big country and you are little countries get used to it. But now he's brought that tone to, to, to our, to our territory in, in Alaska. Yeah. And so I, I think I just wanted to, I just wanted to highlight the, the point that you're making broadly is that it is a very dangerous period of time. The consequences are potentially devastating economically as, as well as militarily. And I hope that the Chinese communist party leadership recognizes it, but I don't think they, I think they're full of themselves right now. And, um, and I, and I think that uh, that they're going to continue on that line, uh, especially since we are engaged in this self-flagellation, uh, as we were with uh, you know with our, our UN ambassador speech and and uh, and what we hear our political elites saying uh, all the time. Of course, you know, of course, our republics are work in progress. Of course, we have issues of, of bigotry and 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 uh, inequality of opportunity and unequal treatment under the law. But heck, what's great about our democracy is is we we can improve short of revolution. What the communist, Chinese Communist Party fears is any kind of criticism of their government because they have not allowed for any kind of correction short of revolution. 
And so I, I think on one hand, we ought to be more confident. We need to build confidence consciously. But I, what I see now is, you know, this puts, you know, kind of some of this language puts, uh, remember the, the Obama apology tour and the speech in, in Egypt uh, during his uh, first few months as president. Uh, I think much of what we're seeing, hearing today is even worse, even more potentially damaging to our reputation. Let me put a couple of thoughts here together. Um, one, one, we've been talking about the China model. People of Burma don't seem to be anxious for the China model, which I think is very right. hopeful. And in fact, the people of South Korea, Japan, not even Vietnam or, or Philippines, they're not very even, anxious. Even Cambodia model. is having second thoughts, right? Yeah, or Zimbabwe. Exactly. This, model right, exactly. is, yeah. this model is not very uh, attractive abroad. What you guys seem to be saying strategically is sort of like First World War. There's a danger. Clearly what China's going to do is like what it did with Hong Kong. It's going to take little steps, slowly strangle, try each step, make try to make sure that each one doesn't provoke the response and see how far it can go. And what you're worried about is a big overstep that uh, finally they do something that rouses the sleeping giant, I think is what Admiral Yamamoto said. <laughs> Uh, and and get themselves into trouble. But then there's the longer term, uh, you know, th this will keep going, even if it doesn't turn into war, longer term, they're gonna keep squeezing and squeezing on Taiwan and other issues. And along with our, our Zeitgeist talk today, um, our country does, we, you guys have been talking about strategic competition and we debate this uh, in, in various forms. But our country does not seem like one that is engaged in a strategic competition for excellence. Uh, in, in, in the last couple of weeks, um, we've gotten rid of the uh, distinctive thing America used to have, which was a selective enrollment public high schools uh, by which even people of modest means who are really sharp could, could get ahead. Uh, our colleges no longer require tests to get into colleges. We as a country are much more interested in who has what job than, who, than that the person designing the computer chips is really good at it. Uh, and that um, that is not a picture of a country that sees itself in a strategic competition where excellence matters. You know, I, I do think this can these we can connect these these themes and and our our, our disappointments uh, because I think the, the external threat you know from you know the so-called China model, China's aggressive actions, the, the insults hurled at our Secretary of State and National Security Advisor. Uh, on our shores. I mean, I hope that can be a galvanizing moment. I hope that can can, can rekindle a, a competitive spirit among Americans and 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 to recognize that you know that that we should all aspire uh, to you know to to make the greatest contribution we can in whatever walk of life that we're in, and we should judge each other as, as Martin Luther King asked us to judge each other, right, based on the content of our character and and not the color of our skin and these and the, and whatever identity category you fall into. You know, these are. I know we're going to talk about this in the coming weeks, but, but I think this is all interconnected, tied to our competitiveness and tied to our confidence, right? Our our confidence in who we are as a people and our democratic principles and institutions and processes. And I, you know, I just think that if you want to, if you want to rekindle your hope in, in America and 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 our and our and our, and our, and our, and our conf, restore our confidence, talk to recent immigrants. <laughs> you know, I mean, we got one here, I know, but I mean, but I think if, if, uh, I mean, that's what restores your faith, I think. And, and what we have, we have these elite classes that are engaged in this self-flagellation, this hand-wringing, this, you know, the, the, this uh, abuse of history uh, in a way that, that pulls us apart from one another and in an artificial way, right? I mean, I, 
I, I don't think any of us should should feel that we that, that we need to adhere to these you know these reified theories uh, you know of, of critical race or whatever. I mean I I think we have to transcend it and maybe the external threat can provide impetus to do it. I'm glad you mentioned immigration HR because uh, if the press conference is still ongoing and the Daily Mail can have another question, uh, it would be uh, for President Biden on the subject of uh, the southern border and the escalating crisis there. One of the easiest things uh, to predict about the uh, first hundred days of the Biden presidency was that a whole lot of people would uh, pick up the signal uh, that uh, Trump was gone, the Democrats were in, and the border was going to be open. And sure enough, uh, an enormous number of uh, unaccompanied minors are, are crossing the border, uh, only a small proportion of, uh, of whom are being turned away. I think this is a, a, a rapidly escalating crisis uh, for the administration, which exposes the tension uh, between its uh, ambitious domestic economic plans uh, and the tendency of those on the left of the Democratic Party to think that borders are themselves wicked and ICE should be disbanded. Uh, this is this is a, an opportunity, I think, for uh, currently somewhat disheartened conservatives to regroup. But I think it's an important question for the administration to, to answer. Uh, it can't, I think, uh, extricate itself easily from uh, this problem. The more the economy booms and the more they uh, make it clear that they're going to be relaxed about illegal immigration, the more people are going to be getting the hell out of Honduras and heading for the border. So I don't know what you guys think about this, but um, I remember saying earlier in the year, this will be a problem uh, and it will be a problem soon. I think I, even I underestimated how quickly this, this would escalate. And it's difficult for the media, which beat up on uh, the Trump administration relentlessly on the issue, not only of the border, but of detention and separation of children, now to, to cover this uh, crisis with any degree of, of credibility. And yet I think it's, it's only just beginning. How do they get out of this? Well, the administration is not even letting them down to take a look at it, which is which is astounding, you know. And and so this is really, you know, I think one of one of the fundamental flaws in the in the way that you know th those who you know I, I don't the labels don't mean very much, but maybe the you know left wing or or liberals look at foreign policy and issues like migration, they they are narcissistic in their view because they attribute causality only to us and what we do or fail to do. So the border crisis before was because we were we were too mean, right? And therefore, with the, you know, Trump generated it. That's not the case, right? There are you know there there are forces at work here associated with economic incentives. There's violence, right? And and uh, and and uh, an instinct for survival that's part of it. And there are organized crime networks and and human trafficking networks that that profit from this activity of of sending children unaccompanied, right, so to 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 the, our borders. So, you know, I think it's time for us to, to have a much higher degree of clarity on this. Maybe we could do this in a future show and bring somebody in. But we have to stop conflating these issues of legal immigration, illegal immigration, migration and refugees. Right. These are distinct. And, and, and we, we, we need we appropriate response to, to each of them. And what happens is it, it, no, nobody even takes time to learn about issues anymore. It's everything is just kind of a knee jerk reaction to it. And I think the administration's paying the price for that now. And, and even when I hear people in the administration this past weekend who are responsible for the issues, they too are conflating 
these separate categories in a way that that, that is confusing and, and and indicates to me that you know I don't think we should have a very high degree of confidence that they're going to come to grips with what I think you rightly point out, Neil, is is not this is just the beginning of what's going to be a much much larger and sustained crisis. So as you as you guys mentioned, so on the policy side, there's a big confusion. There's a problem with the asylum system is the main way of getting into the country as opposed to a reasonable immigration system. This is one where any blue ribbon bipartisan panel could put together reforms easily that go nowhere in Congress. But I think you're pointing out something that's happened to our political system that has become more and more woven into its excesses of ideology. And I think HR is being, you're being a little simplistic. I've learned a lot in the last week from both a piece, wonderful piece by Barry Weiss about uh, the state of affairs in fancy private schools and also uh, Steven Pinker uh, on, on what's going on in America. So Barry Weiss's view is that America is still, uh, is increasingly a country stratified by elites. Uh, the way to get ahead in America is to go to Harvard, Westlake or, or Andover and then into Harvard and so forth. But that the price of admission these days is to master a vocabulary that is as abstruse as Xi Jinping thought uh, in its complete uh, senselessness. And that is of course the vocabulary that now inhabits uh, not just the Democratic Party, but the, the upper reaches of all of our uh, civil institutions. And, and then requires, I think people, as in China, um, propaganda works. Uh, people's brains get muddied by this sort of thing. And um, what, what Pinker brought out is he, he gave a talk about how, when are people rational and when are people irrational? And people are mostly on their own rational, but in a group where adherence to the group, a tribe is tested by your willingness to say completely silly things <laughs> is the domain where people are most irrational. And that, that rang to me very true of what it takes. Uh, even on, I participated in a climate event last week and um, the willingness to just say things that are completely nonsense about a climate crisis of things that are gonna fall apart in the next five years in order to demonstrate your, your member of the tribe. I think uh, there's no longer the ability that, you know, people in the Soviet Union maybe had the ability to mouth the words and then understand how things really worked. Uh, but that mechanism I think is making it hard for the blue ribbon commission to actually say, come on guys, you know, there's an asylum system, there's an immigration system, let's fix this damn thing. So I'd like to jump in and point out that Barry Weiss is going to be our guest next week on Goodfellows. So thank you, John, for teeing that up. Uh, gentlemen, let me ask the three of you this question. Um, Neil mentioned the first 100 days of the Biden administration. I'm curious about the next 100 and the next 100 after that, the first year. Um, Neil, I look at this right now and I see a three-legged stool. One leg of the stool is a theory that if need be, we can find 50 votes in the Senate and get something done. We proved we can do this on COVID relief. Uh, this will be put to the test next on infrastructure. Uh, news out today, they're going to go for three or $4 trillion in things related to infrastructure, both actual physical construction, but also what's called human infrastructure. So Katie barred the door on that. The second leg of the stool would be the idea of progress on COVID. People are getting shots, people feel better, they're getting out in the open, look, things are improving, which ties into leg number three, John, which is the economy coming back, the roaring, the return of the roaring 20s, and Joe Biden maybe is a century's Calvin Coolidge. Neil, my question to you is this, if one of the legs on your stool is the improving condition after the pandemic, what we see in Europe right now, Angela Merkel saying there's a third wave afoot, Germany uh, doing more restrictions, is that a safe bet for the Biden administration moving forward? 
Well, the Biden administration inherited a far superior vaccination uh, program than than the Europeans uh, ever had. O- Operation Warp Speed was one of the great successes uh, of the administration. I remember we talked about it a good deal last year. Uh, HR spoke warmly of the folks involved in that. And so uh, there's no question that the US is in a much better place today than the European Union, which attempted a centralized procurement of vaccines, then got itself tied in complete knots about the AstraZeneca vaccine, and as a result, has fallen badly behind at a time when a new, more transmissible and more lethal variant, B117, is spreading rapidly. Now, that variant is in the United States too. It is surging in Florida and in Michigan in particular, but the vaccination uh, is further ahead. And so the vulnerable groups, the elderly and people with comorbidities are less exposed than their counterparts in much less vaccinated Europe. I think we're gonna see a fourth wave of cases uh, of people, probably younger, unvaccinated people getting the new variant. I think it will spread out from Florida as surely as people return from spring break. But I don't think it's going to translate into a significant crisis of hospitalization and mortality. That would really surprise me. The thing that would worry me the most uh, would be if I was reading more examples of the uh, Brazilian P1 variant, which uh, has an ability to get around previous infection and perhaps around vaccination too. But at at this point, there only seem to be a few isolated cases. And we do have restrictions on travel from Brazil. So I think the outlook in terms of the pandemic is really a whole lot brighter for the United States. And, and you should look at the UK to see a little bit of what the future holds. The UK is ahead of the US in vaccination and the uh, number of, of cases and of, of sick people has plunged uh, to the point that uh, there is no excess mortality in the UK at all. And the pandemic feels like it will be over both sides of the Atlantic in the English-speaking world uh, by at the end of May, perhaps even sooner than that. Uh, what's happening in Europe is, I think, an illustration uh, of what goes wrong if, if centralization is your, is your mode of operation. They've set out almost unwittingly to make the case for Brexit. Uh, and those of us who were skeptical about Brexit have to take our hats off uh, to Boris Johnson's government, particularly to Kate Bingham, who aced the strategy of vaccine procurement, got it right because they prioritized the right things and they attached, I think, reasonable probabilities to the downside risks, whereas Europe's uh, bureaucrats in Brussels were far too risk averse, were slow and didn't realize that uh, that actually going slowly in a pandemic is the wrong approach. You need to move as fast as you possibly can with vaccination. The outlook in that sense is good, and I think that translates also into a pretty rapid economic recovery. You can see that, by the way, already in the mobility data. Uh, If you look at mobility, uh, whether through air travel or people going shopping, it's uh, really leaping up to higher levels than we saw at any point after the pandemic struck last year. Oddly, the only thing that isn't quite perking up is return to workplace, but that's because a lot of workplaces are still not open including, for that matter, the Hoover Institution. But yeah, I think this is going to be a pretty buoyant spring for the Biden administration. They're they're kind of adding fuel to the fire with with fiscal stimulus that probably isn't really that much 
needed uh, and could create problems, as we've discussed in the past, of overheating later in the year. But I can't see, I keep asking myself, how this doesn't pay some pretty significant political dividends to the incumbent. And then, and then I'm back in my press conference and the questions that I, I haven't asked are, hey, what are you doing about violent crime in urban America, which has soared? Uh, since the summer when uh, when the great protests uh, in favor of Black Lives Matter happened. Um, and of course, hey, per, uh, Mr. President, how's your health? Because actually the most important question that we any of us can ask Joe Biden is, how are you doing? You talked about three-legged stools. He looked like a three-legged president going up the stairs of the plane the other day. And we all have to really worry about that because I remain very dubious that Kamala Harris is the right person to become president in the in the tragic event that that Joe Biden uh, falls ill and is unable to continue in the role. All right, John, maybe Calvin Coolidge isn't the best parallel for Joe Biden, but does the Roaring Twenties model apply here? Uh, maybe. So we're in a race that let me pick up the themes that, uh, you know, said we're in a race between bureaucratic bungling, exponential growth and evolution. And Europe shows us how what happens when bureaucratic bungling gets a little bit behind. One of the biggest, Europe was haggling with drug companies over the price of things. Uh, you know, you're haggling over $1 when, you, when the, the, the damage is $1,000. Um, the, 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 they're just, it's possible to bungle more. California is trying really hard to bungle the vaccine. Uh, has not been available in Santa Clara County for a month, thanks to their various uh, equity uh, proposals. Um, so we may sneak out ahead, and we may not. Uh, there's always I always I'm in there for bureaucratic bungling uh, to, to lose to evolution and exponential growth. But I agree with the the, the current the current outlook looks pretty good. Uh, but there's a fourth wave going on in Europe, and it's it's pretty bad. Uh, the outlook, the economic outlook, um, this infrastructure business, uh, count on another three trillion of pork and uh, don't underestimate the ability of our governments to waste immense amounts of money. Now I speak, we're in a state that is in dire need of infrastructure. The power goes out, they haven't cleared the forests, uh, there's no water, but that's the last thing that they're gonna spend money on on an infrastructure bill. Uh, San Francisco spends $330,000 per year per homeless person. This is the number from the New Yorker. They just spent $65,000 a year to put together dedicated tent parking spots. San Jose spends $500,000 per room to convert an old Motel 6 into low-income housing. The, the capacity to waste money in an infrastructure bill, especially when, when we're praying to various green subsidies is enormous. So count on $3 trillion of pork out of that. Uh, are we going to have uh, a roaring 20s? Um, supply, supply, supply. Uh, as Neil pointed out, you, you cannot begin to think of our situation as lack of demand. So the question is, uh, will our economy be efficient? Will, will there be, uh, as there was before, will we be pulling people out of non-work into work, especially the disadvantaged, the unfortunate, the ex-cons, the minorities, all the people who've been out? Or, or will we be so hamstrung by, there's going to be lots of regulation. The flurry of executive orders is going to keep going. Uh, so uh, are we going to have the flexibility that the economy can expand the supply part quite apart. We need the COVID restrictions over, but then uh, get the economy going. That, that's really uh, the big question on demand. And um, I hope 
politics in the next 10 years turns to basic governance. Uh, Neil mentioned crime, uh, schools. Uh, I think a lot of people are discovering teachers unions didn't exactly have it in for their kids. Uh, charter schools are immensely popular in minority communities, uh, and it's strange the Democratic Party uh, is still so adamantly against them. Business is closing down. What are what what happens when the uh, the um, the COVID is over and people notices there are no stores left where they are, in part because the stores have been emptied out by shoplifters and looters that the police don't want to do anything about anymore. Power, water, fire. Uh, will there be a request? from the uh, electorate for basic competent governance. I certainly hope so. So uh, HR, uh, Neil mentioned the president's health uh, and let's delegately approach it in this regard. Uh, it's the opposite of Donald Trump. He is not in the news every day. He doesn't see the need to tweet constantly. Uh, he is not his own press secretary as Trump was. Uh, but yet there is this question of the president being in charge and leading. And I think that uh, the UN ambassador's remarks, what happened in Anchorage to raise questions of, is this Joe Biden being represented or, or is age speaking here? So you've written about Linda Johnson. You wrote a great book about Johnson's experience um, in uh, Vietnam. I believe it was your PhD thesis. As you look at this president HR, what does he have to prove, uh, not just at a press conference, but moving forward, what does he have to prove to show that he is indeed in charge here? Well, you know, I think he has to sit on top of, of a process that delivers options to him so he can determine his agenda and he can implement his agenda. And this is really across all the areas that we're talking about, from, from economic policy to education to uh, to, to defense, right? And and uh, and so we'll have to look for evidence that that's happening, right? That these, this is more than executive orders. These are well-thought-out policies with a long-term view and perspective. And and I hope that that his staff is is, is presenting him uh, with with that kind of analysis and, and those kinds of, of options. So I think that's something to look forward to. I I, I really think that you know to, to to evaluate. I mean, I think we all want him to succeed, right? I mean, I, I think as we look at at uh, the aggressiveness of the Chinese, right? I mean, there's we're we're on we're on President Biden's side, and I think the Secretary of State and National Security Advisor actually did a good job, you know, standing up. Uh, against you know against those sorts of insults uh, that, that the Chinese brought along with them, and and you know I just I just hope that Bill through your previous question I hope if it is if it is the Roaring Twenties that we don't fast forward to the late Thirties you know so we don't we may not have a lot of time to get our feet back under us and I would just echo what John said which is hey let's all do our part at the local level you know we all have problems that we can get our arms around and uh, and do everything we can to strengthen our communities and 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 to, and to help our country. And the little piece of it that maybe we can influence uh, recover from the traumas of the, of the past year. You know what he needs, HR? He needs what you wrote about in a column recently for The Hill. He needs a devil's advocate. So should he have Ferguson or Cochran go to the White House and be his devil's advocate? <laughs> hey, you, you, you couldn't go wrong with either one of those guys. So I, I would say either one of them would be that. I, in fact, I was thinking about them when, when, uh, when Zach Shore and I uh, co-authored that piece. Just pick up on two things HR just said. We want him to succeed. And I think it's important on this show for us to emphasize that fact. We want him to succeed. And uh, succeeding could be to make good on what he said he wanted to do. He wanted to be the bipartisan president, the one who governed well, uh, and uh, not the one who let sort of things bubble up from uh, various constituencies and not get properly vetted. Um, it's unfortunate that the first outing in Congress turned into a 100% uh, partisan affair, uh, given that promise. 
and the next uh, fights are going to be political. HR one, for example, uh, structural uh, and and fairly bitter. I I would like to see the old Joe Biden back, uh, the one who says, guys, uh, we're not going to do the extreme stuff because keeping the ship together is is more important than steering it uh, hard left right now. I wonder though of these executive orders. Uh, I haven't read them all, and I wonder to what extent uh, Joe Biden uh, personally read them all. And lastly, what your comment about the 20s, uh, we may be in a moment of a great green bubble. I was asked to think about financial risks of the green stuff. And the thought that occurs to me is that Tesla, for example, is kept afloat by uh, various, uh, various green credits. Uh, and if uh, our central banks are encouraging this sort of thing every bit as much as they encouraged overinvestment in housing in 2005, uh, if, if things change, this is all subsidized and if different technologies emerge that are better for carbon and or somebody else takes over the government, uh, the big green bubble could be the one that bursts. Or maybe it's the big sovereign debt bubble that bursts. I don't know which one bursts next, but uh, the, the end will be unpleasant, whatever it is. And Neil tells us doom is always coming, or is that doom? Uh, and you never know from where. <laughs> so let's yeah, Scott, how do you you're on to my pronunciation, John. So let's end this on a more pleasant note then. Um, the question of the three. So the president, we're recording this on Wednesday. President Biden went in front of the cameras a few hours ago to talk about the shooting in Colorado. Uh, what presidents have to uh, when a tragedy occurs. Uh, it's not something necessarily that he wanted to because today's message was to travel, go on the road and talk about COVID and uh, talk about the COVID plan and progress. Uh, the point here is that presidents can always expect the unexpected. Uh, the elder George Bush sees the Berlin Wall come down in his first year in office. Suddenly, the Cold War paradigm has changed. The younger George Bush, eight months into his presidency, he goes from being a domestic president to now a wartime president. Uh, as we look for the first year of the Biden presidency, I'd like each of you to uh, suggest to me one tripwire, one expected thing that could come Biden's way. John, I know you hate these questions, so I'll let you go last. Neil, you like these questions, I'll let you go worst. Uh, Taiwan, Colorado, the Atlanta shootings, these are all unexpected events. If you wanna look forward and just look at something that might trip this president up, what would you look to? Well, I've argued before on the show that wokeism is something so foreign to the great majority of Americans that, that the more the administration dabbles in it, the more it is going to undermine its own popularity. The more it aligns itself with the campus left, with the illiberalism uh, that goes on in universities, with the craziness uh, that is going on in, in, in high schools too, especially those elite high schools that our future guest Barry Weiss was writing about. I think the more difficult they're going to find it to derive political benefits from the economic recovery. A good example of where wokeism leads you is, if you've been following it, the number of people on Twitter who jumped to the conclusion that the shooter uh, in Boulder, Colorado, had to be a white supremacist because, well, it just had to be, right? Because that's our narrative, except the guy's name is Ahmed Al-Alawi Alisa which I don't think, unless I'm very much mistaken, is the characteristic nomenclature of uh, of white supremacists. So the tripwire is undoubtedly uh, to react the way the, the left reacted to that, that breaking news. Uh, one thing I actually have to say uh, in defense of, uh, of President Biden, I think he's quite right not to rush into press conferences. And I think it's been a welcome relief to have had a, a president who has a little less to say for himself than his predecessor. It hasn't hurt, has it? 
uh, that politics has been less front and center uh, of our lives. And I just love the collapsing ratings that I'm seeing uh, befalling CNN, MSNBC. I mean, it's like the oxygen went out of the news cycle. And I have to say, I mean, that's a relief for me, at least. Okay. HR, what would you expect in the way of the unexpected? Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, there's going to be a foreign policy crisis of some kind, right? There's just, there's just too much volatility in the world. Uh, you know, I think uh, I think the Iranians are under more and more pressure. They're not going to get the kind of payoff they, they'd hoped for early in the Biden administration. Kim Jong-un is probably getting ready to repeat the old playbook of a provocation followed by an effort at extortion. You have Russia, who's already becoming quite visibly much more aggressive, you know, with the poisoning and the imprisonment of, of Navalny. And we've already talked about the, the Chinese. That's just the beginning. Uh, I think jihadist terrorists are becoming more capable, sadly, uh, as we alleviate the pressure on them. And so, you know, I, I think the, the, what the president will want to do is to be introspective, to focus on recovery, to get through these traumas, to grow out of it. Um, and, you know, build back better uh, domestically, right? But uh, but I think that, that events are going to have a say, and, uh, and and I can't answer you directly. I don't think on this, but but um, but it, it will be it will be it will be a, an event that originates abroad uh, that will divert the attention of the administration. Okay, so the LBJ trap, big domestic plans, but something abroad that complicates that. I think potentially, although the Gulf of Tonkin was sort of conjured up a bit, as we know, from his, from his advisors in 64. Okay, John, I played for time here. You're, you're Thanks, turning, I always need time. What to, expect, what to expect in the way of unexpected? So, you know, you mentioned shootings. Those are actually not unexpected because we just play out this kabuki play. Everybody knows their lines. Uh, somebody shoots, as Neil says. Everybody says, oh, it's a white supremacist. Whoops. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and you repeat the standard political things that have nothing to do with with the event. So that's that's um, I think you know our deans and college presidents send send out uh, e emails of condolence and uh, and we all move on and we fight about minor bits of gun control and get, get nowhere. The kinds of stuff we worry about are the slow decay, the the gentle rot that takes decades. That's what worries me most. Uh, not that no, and then there's the what is the tipping point? Well, Doom, go out and buy your copy of Doom, tells you that people never never know what is the event that's tipping. Uh, foreign looking for trouble in uh, foreign lands is always a place that trouble comes unexpectedly. My job as an as economist will be to say that financial things always pop up unexpectedly, and who knows uh, what financial. Uh, problem will come. Uh, sooner or later, a financial problem will come. Uh, there's the beginnings of hint of trouble in the treasury markets. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, maybe that'll, you know, that those beginnings of trouble happen 10 times for every one time that something bad uh, ends up. Uh, but um, we certainly know that's a case of rot that's built up over decades that sooner or later will go boom. So I will I will venture something financial will go boom and uh, who knows what it is. Well, you've given me the perfect uh, sign off line here. It's going to be if you want to go from boom to doom, buy my book. <laughs> book, <laughs> book, good. I'm working on. It. So, gentlemen, White House press conferences end with the words "Thank you, Mr. President." Since the president's not here today, I'll just say thank you, good fellows, for playing along with me. And as a reward for your good work, you're being promoted back to a Hoover Senior Fellow. So I hope you enjoyed your time in the press corps. I know I did.
And that's it for this week's episode of Goodfellows. We'll be back next week with a whole new conversation. Barry Weiss will be our very special guest. You don't want to miss it. She is great. On the behalf of Hoover's Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, John Cochran, all of us here at the Hoover Institution, by all means, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to keep you informed. We'll see you next week.